Now, beloved listeners, to a cast of real-life characters all linked by the uh, practice of transportation. Now, some were unwilling participants sent to the other side of the world for this or that petty crime. Others were on the journey to oversee and indeed help establish a British outpost and a convict colony. Jim Haynes, OAM, is an entertainer, former schoolteacher and prolific author, and his brand new book is Heroes, Rebels and Radicals of Convict Australia. Jim, I'd say the word prolific doesn't begin to describe your output. How many books... (laughs) Uh, no, I have been accused of churning them out. Um, I've got a number here of 33. Yes, it is. It's 33 books. Mate, it's not, it's not a yep. complaint. I am in awe of your, uh, <laughs> for, your But I've decided in my old age to, uh, uh, and evidently, according to Wikipedia, I'm 86 years old. I think they've confused me with a, another Jim Haynes who passed away a few years ago, famous journalist. But anyway, um, in, in recent times, I have uh, written what I would call pure history, uh, um, where I've explored the myths and then tried to tell the t- true stories, I suppose, behind the myths of various characters from our past and... Now, Jim, writing too many books wasn't a cause for transportation. What sort of crimes got you on a ship? Just about anything. In the 100 years between what the beginning of what they call the Whig oligarchy or the Whig supremacy when the Whig party ruled Britain uh, or ruled Parliament, I should say, um, from if you look at the years from 1723, there were about 50 capital crimes then, which seems, you know, sufficient for all the things you could be hanged for. But over the next 100 years, the crimes for which you could be hanged increased to about 230. And there are lots of reasons for that. And you could be hanged for shoplifting and the last woman was hanged for shoplifting in 1822. In 1823, Robert Peel uh, decided to... uh, modify or correct or or change the criminal code and it went back to about, you know, the same number as it was 100 years before. Nonetheless, 10,000 were hung in that century. Yes, and the interesting thing about that is it's only 30% of those who were actually sentenced to hang because there were all sorts of modifying reasons why the people who were, you know, uh, convicted of, of these 230 crimes didn't hang. And one one was that a lot of the magistrates uh, were not members of the Whig Party, I assume, and they, uh, they commuted the sentence to imprisonment, which could also mean transportation. And, and later in that century, it was just straight transportation. Now, Jim, at the height of the boom in transportation, how many were transported? Well, um, a lot of people think, uh, and as I did as a kid, that transportation started in New South Wales with the First Fleet, and that's far from the truth. It actually began in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, 1597, uh, an act for the uh, punishment of uh, vagabonds, rogues and and sturdy beggars, uh, who evidently were people sturdy who shouldn't have been begging. And um, from that point, 
transportation was a punishment for crime. Uh, James I codified that and then uh, it, it went on and the, the um, 1718, the Whig Party passed the Transportation Act. Now, those people were sent to the American colonies or to the Caribbean or to Canada, Nova Scotia and so on. And we think there were possibly 120,000 of them uh, it was a totally different system because they were indentured labour. So they were sent, they had to get themselves out of the country. At that point, the government had no responsibility for them. They were more or less sold to ship owners who would take them to the colonies of uh, the Americas and, um, and sell them as indentured labour for a set period of time. Whereas in Australia, they were remained under the control of the king and government. That's right. And that was new. That, that was a whole new, new thing. And of course, they had no alternative, really, because if they were going to dump convicts uh, in uh, New South, the colony of New South Wales, then uh, there was nobody to indenture them to. So they had to take some responsibility for them and use the convict labour to build the infrastructure. Uh, there were a few other factors, obviously, empire building. Uh, the French were sniffing around and everyone was wondering what La Perouse was actually doing. And at the last minute, it was a bit of a rush job, really. Uh, people had been banging on about uh, New South Wales, particularly Sir Joseph Banks and James uh, Matra. And um, at the last minute, they said, well, we, we have to do it. And, and that's how the first fleet sailed. And then uh, followed by 165 more, 1,000 more, sorry. Now, tell me more about uh, James Matra, friend of Joe Banks. He was um, not a particularly um, good friend of James Cook, though. He was a midshipman on the Endeavour. His background... Uh, which is where the story really is, is that he was born in New York, but uh, New York was British and he remained loyal to the British through the Revolutionary War, as did many Americans, and he was pretty much uh, impoverished by that. His father was a surgeon in New York and they had property, but it, it was all lost. He tried to recover it after the war, but he'd been loyal to the British and um, he ended up being a diplomat in Tangier and Constantinople and... Um, you know, having to to lower his uh, ambitions quite a bit. And his idea was to give the colony to the American loyalists, the people who lost their, you know, citizenship and, and their, their property and so on during the Revolutionary War. Now, that never happened, but because he put forward that idea, Joseph Banks uh, latched onto it and they connived together to, to put two reports to the British government. And when they uh, realised there was a prison problem, they added the convicts in and said, well, oh, well, we'll send the convicts. They can provide the labour. So he was really the first person to, to put a written submission to the government to say, um, you know, let's colonise New South Wales. This is LNL on RN and we're talking to Jim Haynes about heroes, rebels and radicals of Convict Australia. Jim, uh, you tell the story of transportation through 14 different characters. Let me take a pin and prick the name <laughs> of Mary Reby. Well, she's probably one of the better known ones. She's uh, the, the woman who, who was arrested at the age of 14 for stealing a horse and sentenced to death. It took about five weeks 
and even she went through the entire court process and was in prison for all that time before somebody woke up to the fact that she was actually a girl. She play. dressed as a boy and she carried it off uh, brilliantly, obviously, because she was imprisoned with men and uh, and went through her entire court procedure um, with everyone thinking she was a boy. But uh, she comes out here and uh, she's a bit lucky because she gets to be the nanny to the um, the, the, the vice uh, governor, uh, uh, Gross, Major Gross. And uh, then she marries a, a fellow from the East India Company and oh. she does really well. She ends up owning rows of houses in, in George Street, and farms all over the place. Her husband dies fairly young. Um, and the other... To me, the other great example who isn't in the book is is James Squire. Uh, James Squire was a gypsy. He was uh, uh, convicted twice of stealing, sent out here. He became a constable. He opened a, a brewery. He grew um, hops and became the most respected citizen in Sydney. His funeral was the biggest Sydney had ever seen. Um, he set up a superannuation scheme for convicts. So now he he isn't in the book because I've written about him before. But those two characters just epitomise what could happen once you were dumped out here and all the class system and uh, uh, preconceived notions of, of the British population were, were gone. And uh, what's remarkable is that Mary Reby's grandson was the Premier of uh, Tasmania and at the same time, just so happens that... Uh, James Squire's grandson, was the Premier of New South Wales. <laughs> now, uh, that could only happen here, you know, that the, the grandson of a chook thief and, and, the, and the grandson of a horse thief are the Premiers of, uh, of two of the colonies. Tell me about the Lovells. Now, there is a story because Henry Lovell was the other gypsy on the first fleet. There were only two. One was James Squire, one was Henry Lovell. He managed to dodge the noose at least three times. He had it round his neck at one point when, when Arthur Philip said, you know, all right, I'm going to pardon these blokes. He'd already hanged one of them. Thomas Barrett, the first man hanged to those stealing food. So uh, Henry Lovell then uh, spent some time on Norfolk Island, not this is before it was a place of horror. It was just a, another part of the colony. And he comes back, um, behaves himself fairly well and is finally pardoned and, and he's allowed to go home. Now, the other part of the story is that somewhere along the way, he has acquired a partner in life, a de facto wife, if you if you like to use that term, and she is an Aora woman. She's uh, Aboriginal and Indigenous and they have one son, uh, James Lovello. He, he stays in the colony and uh, he ends up being a, a thief himself later in life and I traced his family. Um, but back in Britain, they join the gypsy circuit and the gypsy circuit is harvesting and, you know, mending farm equipment around uh, East Anglia, the old gypsy circuit. They were the, the people who did the picking and, and the odd jobs and so on. And uh, they're on that circuit and they have um, another child. We don't know how many kids they did have, but they certainly had one more. And um, she was named uh, Sophia or Sapi. And she, at the age of 24, now th this this woman is, we believe, uh, half gypsy and half um, 
Indigenous Australian. And at the age of 24, she's arrested for stealing silver and she's transported back to New South. Well, when I say back, she would not transport her back because she'd never been here. And her story is remarkable. She ends up in the female factory. Now, the female factory, there were quite a few of them scattered around the colonies. Uh, And it was a place where um, the convict women could live and then be assigned as servants. Uh, If they misbehaved, there was a second part of the factory, which was basically a prison, where they could be punished, had their heads shaved and so on. Uh, And she took quite a while before she got to the level where she could actually um, be considered as... Because the, the female factory was also a marriage bureau, (laughs) <laughs> and men could go there and ask. They there was no, no they, the women could refuse, but they could ask the women to marry them. And it was, in a sense, part women's refuge, wasn't it? It was. Yes, the word they used was asylum for women. But yes, it was. And and if you were, you know, at, at one level. Um, the various governors changed the classifications from time to time, but there were always two, sometimes three. And the, the women who were in that, you know, top level could uh, take a husband if somebody came and offered. Um, they could also go to church. They could, uh, they could, you know, do handicrafts and all that sort of thing. Whereas the other, if you behave badly and you kept being assigned to someone and then misbehaving, and in Sapi's case, she became pregnant when she was on assignment and another time so drunk that she was confined to the stocks, um, then you ended up in the prison. Now, when Sapi came here, she had a child who died in the female factory and is buried in St John's Cemetery. She then, um, when she was on assignment, she took up with another uh, gypsy and had a, became pregnant again. She was back in the female factory. That child also died around 15 months and is buried in St John's Cemetery. We don't know where. Um, but finally, she did take a husband. Someone came along and offered to marry her, and she said okay. And it lasted until she had a certificate of freedom, at, in which at which time she bolted and took up with another gypsy character. <laughs> now, introduce me to another fascinating fellow called William Dawes. I find Dawes particularly interesting because uh, he was the only one to take an active interest in Indigenous languages and culture. Yes, he was. Um, You know, thank heavens we have him because his notebooks, which survived, his journal didn't survive. It was lost later. He ended up in Antigua in the uh, Leeward Islands in the Caribbean. Um, That's another story. But uh, all his journals were destroyed in in a cyclone, a hurricane. But we do have the notebooks, and the notebooks uh, are the first attempt, really, to grammify and uh, the vocabulary, the grammar of the Aora language. And, um, you know, they're an absolute treasure. He uh, would have liked to stay, but he has a falling out with Governor Phillips, and for an admirable reason, he refuses to take part in a revenge killing of local Aborigines. That's right, yes. He he was a very pious man and um, uh, there's reason to believe also that he was on the spectrum for autism, which is interesting, but he just refused an order 
and you he really shouldn't refuse the order of the governor when in, you know you're in a far-flung colony he refused to collect heads because the uh, the governor's um, or gamekeeper he was called was was uh, killed probably by Pemelwy and Philip didn't understand this. He should have because he knew about ritual spearings because he had suffered a ritual spearing um, and and said no revenge. When he was speared in the shoulder, it was probably um, the uh, local people telling him that this is punishment for kidnapping some of us and what you're doing to us. Uh, and he, he understood that. But when the gamekeeper was killed. He didn't understand. He said he was. He didn't have a gun. It was, uh, you know, a willful murder. And he ordered a revenge party to go out. And uh, luckily, he put Captain Watkin Tench and Lieutenant Dawes in charge of it. And they were both very sympathetic to the local Aora people. And uh, and I think, reading between the lines, we can assume that the two revenge expeditions never intended to capture anybody. I understand from the book that really the the most significant figure in all of this was Joe Banks. Absolutely, and you know it's it's interesting for me. I you know I I studied my history, and people say, oh, they don't teach kids. Well, we we had our history, and and our teachers did the best they could when I was a kid. And uh, you know, Joseph Banks was this botanist, wasn't he? He was on the endeavour collecting plants and things. And then, of course, you come to realise that he was far more. He was uh, called for many years the father of Australia, because he was in a position to promote the colonisation of New South Wales, and he did endlessly and cleverly. Um, he's a very clever bloke, very well educated. He fabulously wealthy. He was on the Endeavour expedition with his entourage of artists and and servants and hunting dogs and 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 private secretary uh, Dr. Salander. Um, he was on that expedition because he basically financed it. He he stumped up somewhere we don't know exactly between ten and twenty thousand pounds to like, finance like, the expedition. Like a million bucks. Now, oh isn't it? yeah, an incredible amount of money. And uh, once he's back in Britain, he he endlessly promotes Australia. That this that he didn't like the very strange. Uh, he was a man of science, and as a man of science, he had many French friends, and he communicated with them with, about science. But he really uh, wanted to stop. French imperialism, which was, you know, the French were desperately trying to find colonies because they lost everything in the Seven Years' War in the middle of the 18th century. And um, he was determined to stop them. So he he kept, um, and he did it very cleverly. His name was not on the proposal that James Matra sent in, but he was, you know, they put it together themselves in his house in Soho Square. Um, And he also never joined a political party. He was offered seats in Parliament, but he said, if I join one side or the other, I'm going to lose half my influence and half my friends. And he was a great personal friend of course of the king which helped (laughs) but apart from being the most important figure in the history of early australia and colonization of australia uh, he he was many other things that's only one part of joseph banks because he set up the kew gardens you've got to write your 34th book (laughs) and focus entirely on joe banks good on you jim uh we've been discussing his 33rd book the title heroes rebels and radicals 
Chronicles of Convict Australia, published by Alan and Unwin. Good on you, Jim, and that's your lot on our next. We'll take a look at the great Charles Chaplin, who happens to be an associate of my great-grandmother. She had a performing seal act on the musical stage in London when, before he became the world's most famous person. And uh, we're also going to look at uh, his sufferings in the US and his exile from that country during the post-war Red Scares. See you then. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.